It is now time for the reading of God's holy word, and we will be reading from uh, Numbers 22, 1 to 35. And the children of Israel set forward and pitched in the plains of Moab on this side Jordan by Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was sore afraid of the people because they were many. And Moab was distressed because of the children of Israel. And Moab said unto the elders of Midian, Now shall this company lick up all that are around about us, as the ox licketh up the grass of the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of the Moabites at that time. He sent messengers, therefore, unto Balaam, the son of Beor to Pethor, which is by the river of the land of the children of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, there is a people come out from Egypt. Behold, they cover the face of the earth, and they abide over against me. Come now, therefore, I pray thee, curse me this people, for they are too mighty for me. For adventure I shall prevail, that we may smite them, and that I may drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom thou blessed is blessed, and he whom thou cursed, cursest is cursed. And the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the rewards of divination in their hand. And they came unto Balaam, and spake unto him the words of Balak. And he said unto them, Lodge here this night, and I will bring you word again. As the Lord shall speak unto me, and the princes of Moab abode with Balaam. And God came unto Balaam, and said, What men are these with thee? And Balaam said unto God, Balak the son of Zippor, king of Moab, hath sent unto me, saying, Behold, there is a people come out of Egypt, with covereth, which covereth the face of the earth. Come now, curse me them. Peradventure I shall be able to overcome them and drive them out. And God said unto Balaam, Thou shalt not go with them, thou shalt not curse the people, for they are blessed. And Balaam rose up in the morning and said unto the princes of Balak, Get you into your land, for the Lord refu refuseth to give me leave to go with you. And the princes of Moab rose up, and they went unto Balak, and said, Balaam refuseth to come with us. And Balak, Balak sent yet again princes more, and more honorable than they. And they came to Balaam, and said to him, Thus saith Balak the son of Zippor, Let nothing, I pray thee, hinder thee from coming unto me. For I will promote thee unto very great honor, and I will do whatsoever thou sayest unto me. Come therefore, I pray thee, curse me this people. And Balak answered, and said unto the servants of Balak, if Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. And now, uh, now therefore, I pray you, tarry ye also here this night, that I may know what the Lord will say unto me more. And God came unto Balaam at night and said unto him, If the men come to call thee, rise up and go with them. But yet the word which I shall say unto thee, thou that shalt thou do. 
And Balaam rose up in the morning and saddled his ass and went with the princes of Moab. And God's anger was kindled because he went. And the angel of the Lord stood in the way for an adversary against him. Now he was riding upon his ass, and his two servants were with him. And the ass saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way, and his sword drawn in his hand. And the ass turned aside out of the way and went into the field. And Balaam smote the ass to turn her into the way. But the angel of the Lord stood in a path of the vineyards, a wall being on this side and a wall on that side. And when the ass saw the angel of the Lord, she thrust herself unto the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall, and he smote her again. And the angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where was no way to turn either to the right hand or to the left. And when the ass saw the angel of the Lord, she fell down under Balaam, and Balaam's anger was kindled, and he smote the ass with a staff. And the Lord opened the mouth of the ass, and she said unto Balaam, What have I done unto thee, that thou hast smitten me these three times? And Balaam said unto the ass, Because thou hast mocked me, I would there a sword in mine hand, for now would I kill thee. And the ass said unto Balaam, Am I not thine ass, upon which thou hast ridden ever since I was thine unto this day? Was I ever wont to do so unto thee? And he said, Nay. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way, and his sword drawn in his hand, and he bowed down his head and fell flat on his face. And the angel of the Lord said unto him, Wherefore hast thou smitten thine ass these three times? Behold, I went out to withstand thee, because thy way is perverse before me. And the ass saw me, and turned from me these three times. Unless she had turned from me, surely now also I had slain thee, and saved her alive. And Balaam said unto the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I knew not that thou stoodest in the way against me. Thou therefore, Now therefore, if it displease thee, I will get me back again. And the angel of the Lord said unto Balaam, Go with the men, but only the word that I shall speak unto thee, that thou shalt speak. So Balaam went with the princes of Balak. And we will also be reading from 2 Peter 2, 15 to 16. have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam the son of Bosor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but was rebuked for his iniquity. The dumb ass, speaking with man's voice, forbade, forbade the madness of the prophet. Thanks, Keith Joe. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that um, the whole counsel of God is vital and needed for our everyday life. And I pray that we would crave the sincere milk of the word, that we may grow thereby. 
I pray that you would give me wisdom to speak your word faithfully. I pray for the spirit to convict us, to draw us to you, to um, draw us to Christ, and um, that his name would be magnified and you would be uh, exalted. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so um, we're back in our series here in Second Peter, and um, I just thought because um, Peter references the whole Balaam situation, if you didn't know the context and didn't know what happened, um, you would miss the point. So very important to get those that context. And, and there's more there. There's like three chapters dealt, dealing with this situation. Uh, so we just started. I would encourage you at home to read them and to look at the progression of Balaam's prophecy with respect to Christ, who will be the conqueror of Israel's enemies. But all that being said, this morning, out of Second uh, Peter, I have three points. <clears throat> They're very simple. First one is forsaking the right way. The second one would be following Balaam's way. And the third one is forbidding the madman's way. So forsaking the right way, following Balaam's way, and forbidding the madman's way. So first of all, forsaking the right way, and that is in verse 15 where it says, which have forsaken the right way. And uh, last time we saw, as we know, this is part of this whole diatribe that Peter has against the false teachers, that these false teachers have the audacity to rebuke the angelic powers. We looked at that and we saw that is, that is beyond their, uh, their domain. And we also saw the brazen sinfulness of these teachers, that they flaunt their wickedness and their adulterous um, uh, lusts, even in the open, in the daytime. They don't care when they do, what they do. And so what we're going to see now, as Peter continues to talk about them in verse 15 and 16, he links them, these teachers, with this prominent non-Israelite figure in the Old Testament, Balaam. And ironically, if you look back at verse 14, how it ends, cursed children, it's precisely Balaam who was called to curse God's children. And the curse turns on its head because Peter takes the very curse that Balak would place on Israel, and he says, no, really, those who go against God, these false teachers, they are the ones who are cursed. He turns the tables and, you know, as you think about that, that turning of the tables, these divine upsets, as it were, um, there's an increasing, of course, liberalization within Christianity, and it will overcome many institutional churches. I was reminded of that again in Holland as I talked with many people and saw the state of the church there and also thought of the state of the church here. Many, many churches are succumbing to liberalization, but ultimately false teachers will not prevail over Christ's church, will it? Because they are accursed people, the false teachers are, and God's people are blessed. And that's good to remember, because you can be very discouraged. And God says that to Balaam, right? He says, thou shalt not go with them, thou shalt not curse the people, for they are blessed. The rebellion of man cannot dispel the blessing of God on the church. What a mercy that is. We stand under that shield of God's blessing. Now, strikingly, if you look at the text in verse 15, you may not have caught it, but Peter does a little bit of a switch here in Balaam's name. It says, Balaam of Bosor, or they add the italics, the son of Bosor. And the commentators are divided why it says, it says that, because in the Old Testament it says, Balaam the son of Beor. 
And so why does Peter do this? And I kind of incline myself to what Thomas Schreiner says here, that the word bosor is probably a play on the Hebrew word basar, and basar means flesh. And so really he's saying Balaam, the son of the flesh. He's controlled by fleshly appetites. And similarly, these false teachers are men of the flesh. They're not men of the spirit. They follow their fleshly instincts, the wickedness of their own hearts. And so notice it says they have forsaken the right way. They're not coming from the outside. No, these are people in the church. These are people that were probably baptized. These are people that came to positions of prominence, teachers from within, and they are the ones that are abandoning what they once confessed. They forsake it, and they start conniving and opting, uh, opting for new ways, the way of Balaam. You know, there's, there's many, many wrong ways to go. You just need to go to a Christian bookstore and see shelves filled with heresies, shelves filled with things that attack the people of God. And perhaps um, that book that you are reading right now is a subtle undermining of the understanding, for example, of the Trinity, of who God is, who Christ is, who the Spirit is. Maybe it's that friend at work that promotes a compromising lifestyle. There's another way that forsakes the way of God. They might even be Christians. They go to church but they don't really want to follow God's ways. And perhaps this temptation can be more subtle, these many ways of abandoning it. Uh, one of them would be counseling, because much counseling may look biblical. It might be done by people who are Christians, but it is grounded in unbiblical principles and in secular psychology. Perhaps it's the worldview teaching that you absorb you love this podcast and you listen to it and the intellectual engagement is strong but all you're getting is mere theism god is and that's where it ends but you don't acknowledge in that teaching the teachers don't acknowledge the lord jesus christ they're not ministering christ to you such a difference and just think of the sweet freeness of knowing the right way Think of the safety, the security, and the life that is found in being under teachers who speak of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, Him who died and gave Himself for us. We are leaning as a church, not on one another. We lean on our beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to abide more in Him. And so I just pray that our hearts would yearn more for Jesus Christ and being under teachers who would bring us there. That we don't listen to podcasts or sermons and just have our heads filled, but nothing that affects our affections for Jesus. So secondly, this brings us to following Balaam's way, because you notice the text says they are gone astray. Planao, where we get planet. Planets are errant things in the skies. This isn't just a mindless drift that these teachers slowly got into. They didn't just get disoriented on the path of the church. This is willful apostasy. Their hearts craved for something else, and they fell away from the faith, and they chose to get off the path of truth. And we know from other passages that they were never truly believers then, were they? They went out from us, for they were never truly of us. For if they had been of us, they no doubt would have continued with us. But they went out that it may, may, may be manifest that they were not of us. 1 John 2. Perhaps you've seen this. 
you've seen somebody that is part of this church, other churches that were on fire for the Lord, but they're not there anymore. They've kind of thrown it all away. And it's interesting that Peter links the wayward path with that of Balaam. And it's interesting because it says very clearly who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Now, I don't know if you picked it up, but when Keith Joe was reading that account, you're thinking, well, it didn't seem like he was doing anything ill-intended until God stops him. And um, you actually see in the early part of the account that Balaam rejects in the beginning the money offered to him. Right? He says in verse 18, if Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold... I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. So I don't know if you think the same thing as me, but I was like, well, how did he love the wages of unrighteousness when he kind of says, hey, I don't want that. How do we understand it later then that when it's God who even says the second time, if they come, to, the men call thee, rise up, go with them. But yet the word of which I, the word which I say unto thee, that thou shalt do. It seems like he's being obedient. What's the problem with Balaam? Where is he wrong? And yet we know that when he does go, and it seems to be in obedience, it says the anger of the Lord was kindled against him because he went. Does that puzzle you at all? We get some clues in the text. Because God says, when the angel of the Lord says to him, Wherefore hast thou smitten thine ass these three times? Behold, I went out to withstand thee, because thy way is perverse before me. That's a breadcrumb, a clue that Balaam's motives for going were the problem here. It was his purpose, why he went, and that wasn't righteous. In fact, the first breadcrumb, really, of the issue of the heart of Balaam was already dropped earlier when the second emissary came and he lodged them. They had... More rank, right? These were greater ranking officials. They had bigger rewards of honor. And it causes Balaam to appeal to God again, right? It's interesting. And Peter tells us that that is because he had a love for the wages of unrighteousness. Of course, God penetrates the heart. He sees what's going on in each one of our hearts this morning or this past week. When you were tempted, he knows what's inside of us. The interesting thing is that when God speaks, he explicitly says in the very first time, the first time Balaam went to God and asked, two very instructive things. Verse 12, thou shalt not go with them. Thou shalt not curse the people for they are blessed. So Balaam has no problem after God's first explanation, God's first commandment, going to God a second time, still trying to curse the people of God. And that's the problem. That's where we see the problem is his heart. He didn't care about obedience as much as he cared about wealth and honor. And so he was willing to curse God's people when God says, there's no way you're going to curse my people. They're my people. These false teachers aren't much different. They can't claim ignorance of God's ways. They can't not know what God thinks of his church and his people and the word of God and, and stuff like that. They know the truths of scripture and from his word. 
There are many, many teachers on pulpits. There are many people leading seminaries right now who know the truths of God, who are Bible teachers. Some are experts in Greek and Hebrew. They know, but they're like Balaam. They operate from an ulterior motive. God's will is clearly revealed, isn't it? God's son, the gospel of his son is known. And yet for a slick prophet, somebody is willing to throw it all away. Maybe they get more prestige if they teach this way. I sat under some of these teachings when I was in university. People that, that would teach universalism, stuff like that. And, and, and they could put on their vesture of being a theologian. But they were undermining the very things of God. What do you think? Balaam asked God to compromise his love for his people, his blessing. Do you think God actually is interested in compromising his word? Do you think God would even entertain that possibility? It's an outlandish thought, and yet Balaam went and asked again. Think about the subtle poison of this compromise, and it is whispered in the ear of Christians. Some people might be compromising with this. The Bible calls us to assemble, right? Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. But we just went through a season of World Cup. And you're like, well, man, I know it's church tomorrow, but there's also the game. And you're like, ah, it's only once in four years. Surely God will overlook that. Perhaps it's that Bible teacher that you kind of like because he gives a view of the text from a completely different angle. He's not such a stickler on the details of Scripture. And you're kind of drawn to that teacher who gives you permission to do what your heart really wants to do. And you start to listen to them. Have you disregarded the good teachings of your parents like we read earlier from Elizabeth Prentice. Maybe you are tempted to, young men, to disregard the foundation of the Bible because your heart is fixed on something else. It doesn't only have to be young people. It can be old people, too. We can forsake those things. The interesting thing is, you might not capitulate on the first temptation. Balaam, in the beginning, he said, hey, only the word of the Lord. He entertained them. God told him, don't go. He didn't go. But they came again with a little bit more filthy lucre, a little bit more gain. And he hosted them. He entertained them. He kept them for the night. And so maybe you're all too eager to have that friend bring up that temptation, the offer, a second time. When he comes to the door, you're like, Come on in. And it gets whispered in your heart again. Later on, we read that Balaam, when the first try of cursing, when he's actually now in the land of Moab, didn't work. What does Balaam do? Because Balak says, oh, you blessed him. And he says, do it again. Let's try another mountain over here. Does Balaam say, no, 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 no. He does it again. You could just see his, his mouth salivating with the hopes of this honor and the riches. Remember these heretics in Peter are combining a wicked lifestyle with a greedy appetite. That's the hook of sin, isn't it? 
It gratifies bodily lusts. Balaam, the son of Basar, the flesh, and its strokes are proud hearts. You know, Balaam must have had quite the swollen ego, I think. He was asked twice. He was wanted that much, and they came with a lot of offer. And perhaps that's what it is for us. We want to pounce on the opportunity to be wanted. And it's in the fact that people like us so much, we're kind of special. They keep asking me. That we're like, hmm, I'll consider it. And we compromise. Look at me. Look what I've done for God. And we're not doing it for God. We're doing it for something else. Not for him. Balaam doesn't give up. Idols of the heart are very tenacious. They keep asking. They keep wanting you to offer to them. And so, we didn't read it. But Balaam tries to curse the people. And it doesn't work. Instead, God puts in his mouth blessings for them. Blessings for Israel. So what does Balaam do then? Does he give up and say, okay, I clearly can't do this? What does Balaam do? Was he successful in bringing destruction to the people of Israel and getting his way? Well, we see it, if you're still in Numbers, Numbers 25, 1 to 3, says that after Balaam leaves, it says this, And Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods. And the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. That happens right after the failed cursing. And God plagues his people. He chastises them in the wilderness. But the link to Balaam, we don't know till later on. Because Moses, just before he dies, God says, one last thing I'm going to have you do. I'm going to have you bring vengeance upon Moab for what they did to my people. And he's going to judge Midian. And so in Numbers 31, 16, it says this. It says, Behold, these caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to commit trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. So Balaam couldn't do it these ways. So he gives some advice the other way. That's how these false teachers operate. Any way to connivingly get what they want. And they will destroy God's people for their own gains. And they'll be very inventive, very clever. One tactic fails, the other one is brought up. They'll employ another one. And therefore, we need to be so vigilant in our churches that we cover all the angles that we're on our guard. Theological purity. For so many people, it's like, well, I'm not an academic. I don't study systematic theology. Dear people, our elders need to be grounded in the word. Men, you need to be grounded as you lead your families in theology. Young men, set yourselves up now, if you want to lead a home one day, to be grounded in the theology of the word of God. Do not discount reading a solid systematic theology. It will bless you. It will bless the church. It will guard you. It will be the fence posts around to guard us. Practical purity is also not an option. We must be vigilant for holiness. We must be desirous that piety is practiced within this church. 
That we guard our tongue, we guard our eyes, we guard our feet, which are so eager to go in the ways of the world. Do you think that you're less vulnerable than the people of Israel who are encamped at those mountains in the valley of Shittim? Which army would we consider as a wise army when it lets its guard down at night? We'd say that's a foolish army. Which nation survives when it abandons God? They don't. Have you considered the consequences to Israel when they let their guard down? It says in the Bible, many Israelites sinned. And so one conniving little false teaching, one compromise of holiness can affect many. Many Israelites sinned, many bowed down to other gods, and many died in the plague that God brought upon them. You think of 1 Corinthians 11, the Lord's Supper, right? For this cause many have fallen asleep. Balaam is a prototype of future Balaams. In fact, Jesus brings him up in the book of Revelation, in the letters to the churches, to Pergamos. It says, But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast them here, no, sorry, thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel. Notice he says nothing about the cursing. He talks about what he did afterwards. To eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. And then Jesus links this. He says, So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. Revelation 2. In the text it says that Balaam loved the wages of unrighteousness, doesn't it? You see, everything ultimately centers on our affections. What do we really love? What do we really long for? What is ultimately lovely about the honor of man? What Balak would offer to Balaam? The wealth of this world. What is ultimately lovable about that? Haven't often the wealthiest people been the most miserable? Haven't often the most popular people been the most depressed people? You know, they get their claim to fame in Hollywood, and they're miserable. They hate living in the glass box. How worth it are these things, really? Oh, dear believers, let's look at the opposite side. Let us remember the loveliness of Jesus Christ. Let us love him. Let us set our affections on him. How precious is him who loved us and gave himself for us. How worthy of our pursuit and of our deepest longings is Christ who pursued rebellious sinners like you and me to save us. How priceless is the blood of Jesus Christ which pardons us from all of our sins. Think about that. All of our sins. The things you did this week. The attitude problems. The way you lashed out against your friend, your co-worker, your spouse, your children. He cleanses us from all our sins. Can any heart ever be too joyful with loving God? Have you ever heard anyone who on their deathbed said, I loved Christ too much? No, never. Oh, let us love the wages of righteousness, of pleasing God, not for money, 
but for the love of Christ, for his approval, his affection. You know, I was thinking, as, as you think about the depression that pursuing this world, the money and the popularity gives you. Remember what Jesus says in the parable of the stewards and they all had their talents and they used them. And then afterward, Jesus says to the faithful one, he says, well done, done thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. But it's what he says next that really gripped me. What does he say? Enter thou into the joy of thy master. A heart that now yearns for Christ, that pursues him. One day, we'll only see that expanded to further joy, further love for Christ. It's always worth it to pursue Jesus Christ and to obey him. Brings us to the last point. Forbidding the madman's way. Because Peter reminds us of what happens to Balaam. This is really strong in the Greek and it's hard to carry over in the English. But he contrasts the donkey's normal inability to speak. That's how it says it. Donkey's inability to speak with man's normal ability to speak. When it says with a man's voice. It normally doesn't belong to a donkey to speak. And that's why it says it the way it does in the Greek. But it also says that the donkey, which is normally a beast of burden, normally an animal of folly, it is contrasted here with man's normal ability to be a wiser creature and superior to the animals, and everything here gets turned on its head. Right? It's another total inversion. Because just like the curse that Balak wanted to put on God's people was inversed and turned to God's enemies. Similarly here, the animal that normally couldn't speak starts to speak, and the one who's really the fool is the man. And he gets rebuked. Normally, the animals get rebuked. Oh, you stupid animal like this and that, right? No, not in this case. It's the people, the man, who gets the rebuke for his iniquity and madness, it says. It's interesting because Balaam was a soothsayer, a seer. What did they normally do? They would read the entrails of animals. They would look right into the intestines and try to divine by them. And here, actually, it's funny because an animal would be the one who sees the reality. And this guy's a fool because he doesn't see the angel. Isn't it shameful for Balaam to have his donkey be his own teacher? Calvin would say that, he says, it is a judgment of God that the donkey's eyes were opened to the angel before Balaam's eyes were opened. Also powerful in the Greek is that the words iniquity and madness are a play on each other. I'll read them here, you might be able to hear it. Paranomia, the iniquity, the trespass, paranomia. And madness is paraphronia. It's a clear wordplay. And you know what he's saying there? Iniquity and madness are super similar. Because overstepping God's law is absolute madness. And we have a culture that is abounding in trespassing God's law. And it is absolute folly. We need to let that sink in. It is madness 
to indulge in sin. It is insanity to promote violating God's ways. Pro-choice is actually pro-death. Men identifying as women have destroyed women's sports. We, we talk about these things. It's madness. Critical theory saying that math harbors white supremacy is madness. And yet they trespass God's standards, God's ways, and they recreate this world. Absolute madness. The donkey sees it and man presses forward. But here it's false teachers. It is madness to teach anything contrary to the ways of God. It is madness to have a Jesus that is not the second in the Trinity. It is madness to take the Holy Spirit and to bring Him down as if we control Him. It is madness for us to pursue anyone else besides Jesus Christ. And so the strong word here, He was forbidden or He forbade the madness of the prophet. That's what the donkey did. Because you remember when the angel of the uh, Lord confronted the donkey who saw him, he first turns, it says, into the field. And then by the vineyards, when there's a wall on each side, he crushes Balaam's foot, which is striking. I was thinking about that. Why does it say that? Because everything in the Bible is there for a reason. These are like breadcrumbs. Well, you could just say, well, it just happens to be his foot gets crushed incidentally. But his, it says in Proverbs, their feet are swift to shed blood. To curse the people of God is to shed the blood of the people of God. And Balaam's feet were swift, and the angel would crush his feet. Just a small breadcrumb, I think, as you look through Scripture. And then even though Balaam beats the donkey, what does it do next? It buckles under him. It refuses to press forward. That's interesting. Because the donkey knows the seriousness. He forbade him to move forward. Balaam doesn't see it. Our society doesn't see it. And so we do know what's ahead. And we must be like the donkey. We must stop. We must not move forward. We must not compromise. We must not play their games. Dear people, don't we know that the day of judgment looms ahead? The angel of the Lord had his sword, sword sorry, drawn, it said. What do you do when you have a sword drawn? You are ready to inflict judgment. Oh, that we would stop in our tracks. We should rather buckle to our knees than to comply with the wickedness of lawlessness and iniquity. Today, the angel of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, it says in the book of Revelation, speaks through his word. It says it is a two-edged sword. So how do we stop society? How do we speak into society? But with scripture. Quote scripture to unbelievers, to your unbelieving friends, to your unbelieving people within your family. Quote scripture to your governors and to your princes, to our rulers. Quote scripture to our neighbors and to our friends. That is the sword that judges, that penetrates, and that pierces. False teachers love to neuter the doctrine of judgment and wrath. They love to promote a God who has no regard for holiness. And so we have to remember the foolishness of rejecting that very doctrine, judgment, and holiness. 
Do you think that churches can play with fire and not get burned? Proverbs tells us that's not the case. In fact, interestingly, when Proverbs talks about lust, and these men are swift to do that, these false teachers, Proverbs 6.27 says, Can a man take fire into his bosom and his clothes be not burned? What's the answer? Absolutely not. You will be burned. You know, having come back from the Netherlands a couple days ago, I'm reminded again of the state of the church over there. There are some very solid believers there, and I met some of them and was blessed to have many good conversations there, but there's also many, many who are being led astray. One godly young man who had considered seminary, he went to Bible school, and I asked him about seminary, and he he said there's no good seminaries there right now, none. He said one of his fellow classmates at Bible school who went to one of those seminaries, he says within a year had all of his theological moorings just taken out from underneath him and has completely bought into uh, apostasy. False teachers have poisoned the wells of these schools. Be careful, church, they can poison within. We have to be on our guard. And so in closing, when you consider the way of Balaam and the madness, consider instead the way of God's truth. How much more is the way of Christ the way of wisdom, and the way of God's favor. Whereas false teachers seek their own glory, and they they will do it over the backs of others. They will destroy the church if they can get the praise of man and the wealth of man. Christ, who had all the wealth and all the glory, laid it all aside for miserable sinners who wanted nothing to do with him. God, who was in the heavenlies, comes down it is, I read that this morning from Gurnall. Gurnall says, It is one thing for a beggar to be lifted up into the palace of the king, but it is quite another for the king to come down and to live in the cottage of the beggar. Christ had only pure motives when the false teachers have wicked motives. In Christ, we see one who, though he could justly have destroyed us, and we are the ones on who the curse was, he takes the curse on himself to save us from that wrath. And then, to add to that, he not only takes our curse, he gives us his blessing. Praise be to God. How open are the arms of our Christ to those who seek after him. Now there's going to be those who will come to our churches And for the sake of gain or fame, we'll try to draw the affections of the church away from her Savior. Our eyes may wander for a while, and we might go after them for a bit. But praise God that his eye will never leave his beloved. His eye is constant for his church, for us. What a mercy that is. Steady is his heart for his people. Sure are God's affections for us, his elect. Strong is his arm to bring us into his everlasting refuge. Christ is our sure and steady anchor. He is the right way. He is the way of truth. And he will guide us into the path of everlasting life. Last Sunday, I believe. Yeah. I spoke with a 93-year-old man in Holland. And I asked him, I said, oh, you must have lived through the war. And he said, yeah. And he spoke to me about the suffering 
He talked with me about the horrors, the hatred, the murders, and the famine of 1944. He said people from the city would come to the farms looking for food, and he said sometimes you'd find them dead in front of the house. And then he said, but my life is almost done. My life is drawing to a close. My time here is finished. And so then we parked talking about the war. We talked about the gospel. And I just wanted to impress on him that that's ultimately our only refuge. Because I said to him, well, I hope to see you one day. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, can that be? Can that be? I said, absolutely that can be. We must rest in the forgiveness and the blood of Jesus Christ. That one day, each one of us, children, young children, old people, wherever you are, whoever you are sitting here this morning, that we may gather together with the host, the myriad beyond number in Jesus Christ. That is our hope. Let us end this service. Let us end this Sunday. And let us begin our Mondays speaking of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that the way of truth, the way of life is the way of Jesus Christ. And I pray that our hearts would love him. Oh Lord, we look to you to impress that love for you. More love to thee, oh Lord. More love to thee. That is our prayer, Lord. And I pray that our hearts would be drawn to you in Jesus' name.